Luke 12, verses 49 through 53. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gretchen. What we've been doing this spring is uh, we have been looking at these questions that Jesus asks. All throughout his ministry, he's, he's asking questions. And so we're pausing, we're looking at a few of these and um, exploring what's, what's behind these questions. And the question he asks in this passage uh, this morning is uh, a bit of a doozy. And uh, it made me think of this phenomenon, I don't know if you're familiar with it, um, Russian slap competitions. Are you familiar with this? I heard about this a number of uh, months ago, and there's a million videos out there on, on the YouTubes, and you can find compilations of this. But what this is, this is a sport in Russia, apparently. I've heard it's coming to the States, but um, the, the videos I saw took place in Russia. It's of two men standing and facing each other with a table between them, and they slap each other. And the, the first person who uh, taps out first loses. You can't lift up your feet. It's just two feet planted, slap each other. And, and you, you hear that and you think, that sounds so dumb. That sounds so lame. What are we doing? And um, you have to see this, by the way. Like you, you, after, you know, later today, go, go look this up. Because here's what I want you to picture. Picture... Two men facing each other, and each man is like a hybrid between Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Hagrid. They're, they're just these giant, burly, bearded lumberjacks facing each other, like, like two bearded sumo wrestlers squaring off. And, and so when one of them, you know, twists his body back to slap this other person, his hand is like an enormous meat paw. It's, it is just the size of a, of a baseball glove. It just covers this, the face. And so when they rear back and slap each other, it's, they're, they're, people are getting knocked out. On, like People are catching them because they're getting knocked out with one slap. I'm surprised their heads don't like fly off like they're playing t-ball or something. And, and you watch these videos, and you're like, what are they doing over there in Russia? What is going on? This is insane. But I, I I bring this up because in this passage this morning, it kind of feels like that's what Jesus is doing with this question. He, he's, you know, you picture meek and mild Jesus walking along, and he's talking about rest. He's talking about grace, and he says, you know, let the little children come to me, and you picture like a bunch of lambs around him or something, and then he just turns and smacks the, the mess out of you because, look, look he asked this question in verse 51, he says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? And our expectation is, well, yeah, he's Jesus. This is what he does. And he says, no, I tell you, but rather 
division. You feel smacked by that. And you're like, okay, that's really unsettling. Because we know that um, division is the worst. If you've ever had you know, a Thanksgiving meal with extended family during an election season, like year, that's not fun. D- division isn't fun. We, underst- we know about how icky tribalism is and throwing bricks at each other and demonizing the other side and the hostility. Like, d- division isn't great. So why is Jesus like, I'm, all, I'm doing the division thing? And it's not only unsettling, it's really confusing. Because in this very gospel, the gospel of Luke, 10 chapters earlier, you get the, the Christmas story, like the Christmas narrative of his birth, of like the angels and the shepherds and the, the star and everything. And there's a verse in the gospel of Luke that churches read every year around Christmas time, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, that says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's well pleased. Same exact book. In fact, we sing that every year. Peace on earth and mercy mild. I'm not going to sing anymore. Someone was singing it. Peace on earth. We sing it. We passed the peace of Christ earlier in this service. Jesus is referred to in the Bible as the prince of peace. One of the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. So what does he mean when he says, I did not come to give peace? It's confusing. It's unsettling. But to make sense of this, we kind of need to step back and look at this passage as a whole. So what I want to do is I want to look at two images from this passage and try to unpack what's going on with these two images and why we need them both. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two images and why we need them both. There's your roadmap. Here's the first image that Jesus brings up, and it's fire. Not the, the image itself is fire. It's, I mean, it's a fire image as well. But um, in look at 49, it says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, what's he talking about? Fire is uh, maybe the dominant image in the Bible to refer to God's judgment, it's referring to God's anger and hostility that he, he feels towards human rebellion and sin. And so there's, there's, this is a metaphor used all throughout the Bible. Let me just give you a sampling. Here's Isaiah 66, verse 16. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. Here's another one, Isaiah 29, 6. From the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of consuming fire. One more. Micah 4.1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, you hear all of that, and you think, well, that's a little intense. And then you hear the end of verse 49 when Jesus says, and would that it were already kindled, meaning he cannot wait for this to happen, like a child on Christmas Eve, ready for this judgment of fire to come to the earth and burn everything up. Now, I know we hear this, 
and are immediately made uncomfortable. I mean, listen how quiet this room is right now. We don't like this. As modern, progressive, thoughtful people, this feels primitive. I mean, this is literal fire and brimstone language. This is the kind of stuff of like fundamentalism that we are trying to avoid. We don't like this. Before you write Jesus off though, can I encourage you to maybe hear him out? Because I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you're honest, deep down, you actually want the same thing. Here's what I mean. Um, what do fires do? They, they do a lot of things, but one of the functions of a fire is that they cleanse things of lasting value. They cleanse things of lasting value. This is why we have smelting furnaces and you put gold or you put ore or you put some sort of precious metal in these furnaces. And of course, the fire burns off all the impurities. It burns off all the dross so that what you are left with is this beautiful, pure thing. When you hear story after story after story of violent crime in our city and you ache over it and you want it to go away, that's you longing for the fire to come. You're longing for some force to come and to cleanse a city that you love, not to destroy a city, but to cleanse it, to get rid of all the stuff that is so heartbreaking and so terrible. When you hear yet another horrific story of police brutality and you ache over it, you want the fire to come and to cleanse the way that we do policing in our society. Jesus is longing for this fire to come, and it says that he wants it to come on the earth, meaning that the whole earth is full of cruelty and violence and oppression and injustice and greed and lust, and he wants something so powerful to come that it cleanses the world that he loves so that when God's judgment has done its work, what is left behind is this beautiful, stainless, new heavens and new earth. That's what he's longing for. There's a, um, there's a house, just a, you know, we live on this street on Cowden, just a few blocks that way, and there's one of our neighbors has a, uh, a yard sign out front, and the, the sign is quoting uh, an Old Testament passage from the Bible. I don't know if this family is religious or Christian or whatever, but they have a, they have a Bible verse on the front of their lawn. And here's what it, it's a, it's a famous passage from Amos chapter 5. And here's what that passage says. Here's what the yard sign says. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, of course, that's the language that Martin Luther King used in his uh, I Have a Dream speech that he gave at, his, at the March on Washington. But what that sign is saying, what those people are saying, what King is saying, what Jesus is saying, what I think you and I are saying is we long for justice. We long for the waters of justice to come and to cleanse and to fix the world and the city that we love. But here's where we butt up against a problem. Because if the waters of justice are going to flow down, we're at the bottom of that hill too. If the fire of judgment is going to come, if we're honest, I mean, we've got dross. We, we have impurities. We're, we're not just passive uh, spectators of injustice. We are full participants of it. 
we aren't just victims, we're also villains. In our small ways, all throughout our lives, all throughout our relationships, we contribute to the breakdown of the world through our cruelty, through our greed, our lust, our selfishness, our whatever. So how is fire going to come and not just go scorched earth on us? How will we be spared? That brings us to our um, second image. First image is fire. The second one is baptism. You see that in verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, this is really strange because Jesus has already been baptized. He was baptized back in Luke chapter 3. And if you think about a baptism, it's just, you know, you're getting cleansed with some water. Anytime we have a baptism here, it does, it's not really a source of anguish. For, maybe it is. I don't know. I've never, I've never seen or maybe for some of the children it is. But for most of the time, baptism is not a thing that causes great distress. So what is this anguish, stressful thing that Jesus is looking forward to that he hasn't experienced yet? Well, um, it's fascinating, but water is also an image in the Bible that can be used to refer to judgment as well, or justice. This is why in that Amos passage, it says, let justice flow down like water. Or you think about Noah and the flood. God sends this massive flood to cleanse the earth. It's a form of judgment on the earth. Uh, let me give you two more. Psalm 88.7 says, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Remember in Jonah, Jonah gets thrown into the water, and in Jonah uh, chapter 2, after he gets punished, he says this, For you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and all your billows passed over me. So, water is this image of judgment as well, but here's what's fascinating about baptism. Jesus is putting himself in this position where he's the recipient of those waters. The waters of judgment are falling on him. He's looking forward to this moment in the future that is causing him so much distress and so much anguish because he knows that there's this judgment that is coming for him. And every commentator agrees he's talking about the cross here. He's looking forward to this moment when he knows all of God's anger and hostility towards our cruelty and lust and violence and selfishness. It's coming on him like a tidal wave, it is going to come crashing down on him, and he's going to get consumed. He's going to get scorched earth so that you and I might be cleansed, so that you and I might be saved, so that you and I might be spared. Now, just to put some um, color to this, I came across this story in the news a number of years ago that uh, I've never been able to forget. I've told this story countless times. It's about a man named Juan Rodriguez. It took place in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and he's working at a, uh, like a convenience store, like a gas station, something like that. It's behind the counter, 55-year-old man. And uh, this 20-year-old young man comes into the store, goes up to the counter, pulls out a knife, sticks it in, his, in Juan Rodriguez's face, and demands all the money from the register. And uh, Rodriguez is able to distract him in that moment long enough to, I guess, reach behind him where he had a baseball bat. And he pulls out this baseball bat and spooks the young man, and, the, and he chases him out of the store. 
and ends up chasing him down the street. So you can picture this 55-year-old man with a baseball bat chasing this, you know, 20-year-old younger dude, I guess holding a knife, or I don't know what happened. And he's calling out, help, help, robber, stop him. And there's this group of people just happen to be on the street, and they see this happening, and they run over and clothesline the dude, throw him to the ground, pin him to the ground long enough for the old 55-year-old to show up and catch his breath and call the police. As he's on the phone with the police, and the, the police are on their way to come uh, pick up this dude, the, there's a group of like eight to ten people that kind of surround this guy, and I, I don't really understand why this happened, but this mob forms where they are basically just beating this guy to a pulp, punching him and kicking him, and he's on the ground. It's just this mob of people that are just pulverizing this poor dude. And Juan Rodriguez sees this happening and intervenes, and he jumps through the mob and throws his body on top of the man who just stuck a knife in his face so that now the punches are raining down on his back. Now the shoes are getting slammed into his ribs. He's absorbing all of these blows to protect this guy's life. The paramedics show up. He gets taken away. He's in critical condition, but his life is spared. That is an amazing picture, but more than anything, it's, it's, this, it's a picture of what the gospel is. Because you and I are the people that stuck our knives in God's face, as it were. And we contributed to the breakdown of the world. And we now find ourselves broken and bloodied and dying on the side of the road. And when God had every right to just unload this tidal wave of judgment on us, he doesn't. He sends his son Jesus to come and to intervene and to cover us and to shield us. And he takes the blows. He receives the tidal wave. The, the fire of judgment falls down on him. So yes, in a very real way, Jesus came to give peace. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. But... that unavoidably creates division because there are some people who will receive that peace and there'll be some people who reject it. There's some people who want Jesus, who love Jesus, who need him to intervene on their behalf and there are some people that don't. That's what Jesus starts talking about next in this next uh, verse, uh, 51 and 52. He says, humanity is gonna be divided over me. And that division is going to go down even to the tightest of human relationships, a family. This is why he starts mentioning why, uh, you know, all these different family dynamics in verses uh, 52 and 53. The point is, Jesus is unavoidably polarizing. And that's a really hard pill to swallow, but I think it's really important because what Jesus is saying is that the world is divided, but it's not divided fundamentally along the same lines that we tend to chop the world up into. We tend to divide up the world into political lines. You got liberals, you got conservatives, you got Democrats, Republicans, you got people that are pro-Trump, you got people that are anti-Trump. And Jesus is saying the world is not fundamentally divided along political lines. It's not fundamentally divided along uh, social issue lines of pro-life or pro-choice, uh, pro-gun, anti-gun. The world's not fundamentally divided along geographic lines, the east and the west, north and south, Midtown and East Memphis, Memphis and Nashville. 
He's saying it's not, it's not fundamentally divided along uh, economic lines, the haves and the have-nots. It's not fundamentally divided along racial lines. It's not fundamentally divided along uh, sexual orientation lines or gender or your Enneagram type. Any of these things, Jesus is saying the world is fundamentally divided along these lines, those who love me and those who don't, those who want me and those who don't. If you think about it, if I stood up here and I said, hey, Jesus is great. He's one way among many forms of salvation, and you should totally try him on. You should totally check him out, believe in him, and if he works for you, great. But you know what? If he doesn't, NBD. You should try on um, Buddhism, try on atheism, try on, you know, Scientology. You know, it's, it's true for me, but it doesn't have to be true for you. Now, if I say that, nobody in Midtown gets upset by that. There's no, there's no issue with that. There's no division. But the moment I stand up here and quote what Jesus actually said, where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now we have some division. Because now that feels oppressive. That feels, that feels icky. That feels, there's something weird about that. But here's Jesus, and he's saying, okay, this is a truth claim and it can either be true or false. You must believe in me. There is no salvation apart from me. If you do not rest upon me, you will not be saved. When Jesus says that, for some people, they will hear that and say, that feels oppressive. And some people will hear that and say, that feels liberating. Some people will hear that and say, that sounds so narrow-minded and backwards. And some people will hear that and say, that feels so life-giving. Either way, now we're divided. What's fascinating is that in our cultural moment, we tend to put religion and faith into sociological or cultural categories. We, we, it's, not, it's not like in the same category as math. Math is universally true. One plus one equals two regardless if you're in America or China or Russia or whatever, it doesn't matter if you're in the year 2023 or the year 3000 BC. But faith, faith doesn't feel like it fits in that category. It belongs over here in this, like it's similar to like a food preference category. It's like, I like hot dogs, but you don't have to like hot dogs, like whatever you want. And so that's where we kind of put Jesus. And so some people have come along and said, you know, Jesus has said these really uh, uncomfortable things that does create division, these truth claims. And so we need to move these truth claims out of math world and put them into food preference world. We come along like his PR agent and say, Jesus, you've said some stuff that people don't like and it's making people uncomfortable. So we're gonna, we need to tone you down. We need to edit you a little bit, Photoshop some of this stuff airbrush some of this stuff that you said out so that you're more likable, so that you're more attractive. And so people will hear you say, hey, I just want people to love each other. If you like me, great. If not, whatever. But here, here's the point. Don't you see there's, there's zero intellectual integrity with that? We, don't, we can't come behind Jesus and, and he, he won't let us just edit him and reduce him down to food preferences. He's making truth claims. I am the way. I am the truth. And truth claims are polarizing. 
because they're either true or they're false. And you either are with him or you're not. See, some people will hear that and say, you see, that's the problem, though. That's what creates all the problems in the world. If you believe this stuff, it creates division. You've got all these problems with it. And I'll admit, it's problematic. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But what I want to try to show you for the rest of our time is if you, if you don't buy these two images, if you don't believe in these two images, I think you have more problems. You have a more complicated, more problematic way of doing life if you don't believe in the fire and the baptism. So let, let me try to do that for the rest of our time. Why do we need these both? Fire, baptism, why do we need them both? First, why do we need the fire? Let's say you don't believe in the fire. You don't believe in a God of judgment, which means you live in a world in which you are now uh, in a bind because the universe that you inhabit is one in which atrocities um, go unchecked in an ultimate sense, which leads you into one of two directions. It leads you to direction one, which is, I think, apathy, where you become apathetic. If you live in a universe in which there, there is no higher authority that holds anybody in check, holds nobody's feet to the fire, then what's the point of doing anything? If there, let's say there is no God, and, and the, sun, the, the way that human history ends is that the sun just burns out, and the earth freezes over, and human civilization is just forgotten. And so in a bazillion years from now, all of the, none of this matters. What's the point of fighting for justice? Who cares about giving your life away to help somebody else? It, ultimately, it doesn't matter. It might make you feel better in this moment. It might help society an uh, 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 inch, but ultimately there's no point. You can uh, write a beautiful symphony or you can shoot up a shopping mall. In 10,000 years from now, neither one will matter. It leads you towards apathy or it can lead you towards being a vigilante. I mean, if, if, you've, if you've experienced hurt in the world and everybody has, if there is no higher authority, no higher power, then some personality types will say, well, I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to make people pay for this. And so, I mean, we've all heard the, um, the phrase, hurt people hurt people. Um, victims of injustice can easily become agents of injustice, where you just perpetuate the hurt and the violence and the cycle goes on and on and on. That's if you don't believe the fire. But let's say you say, okay, I'm willing to believe in the fire. Um, what about the baptism, though? Let's say you just want to believe in the fire, that there is a God and there is a judge, but you don't believe that he's merciful. That also puts you in a bind because now you're saying, okay, there is a God and he has these standards. He's got black and white, right and wrong, and he is unbending and unmerciful. But because here we are and we're religious and we're, we're being spiritual, we happen to find ourselves on his, on his good side. And so when religious people think that their God loves them, saves them, approves of them because of how moral, because of how spiritual they are, you know what that does? It creates self-righteousness. This is why every religious system inevitably fuels some form of violence. It doesn't matter what kind of faith it is. If you think that you hold the truth and that truth you arrived at by your own effort, 
If you've saved yourself by how good you are, you have a religious justification to look down on other people. And if your God also looks down on other people, now you have a religious justification to exploit them too or to hurt them or to harm them or to avoid them. This is you killing the infidels. And we've seen this play out sadly time and time and time again in human history over and over and over and over. But if you have the fire and you believe in the baptism and those come together, that totally changes the landscape. Because you believe in a God that is a judge and yet in his mercy, he has come to bear that judgment himself. That creates a disposition unlike anything else in the world. Because now you can say, now you have the resources to say, there is evil in the world. I can acknowledge right and wrong and not get swept up into relativism. I can plant my flag and say, this was wrong. But now you have a disposition of kindness and love towards it. There is nothing like that. Nothing creates a disposition like, disposition like this where you can acknowledge evil and move towards it warmly. Let me show you how this plays out practically and then I'll stop talking. Uh, when I do uh, premarital counseling with couples, come into my office and we talk about marriage and at some point we'll talk about communication and conflict and how to, how to fight fair and how to wrap up, uh, how to resolve conflict well. And um, it's very common in relationships for a conflict after, you know, a, a, a harsh, you know, battle of people clashing with each other. At, at some point, um, somebody in the relationship will, if the relationship is even remotely healthy, somebody will be able to acknowledge, hey, I screwed up. I was wrong. Uh, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings. I was a jerk. And it's very common for the other person at that point in the conflict to say, it's okay as a way of saying, we're good, it's cool, we can move past this. And I try to tell them, don't do that. I want you to use um, forgiveness language because Christian forgiveness does something that what you just did doesn't do. If you say it's okay, um, the problem with that is it's not okay. Like that's why you just argued for the past three hours. You, you have hurt feelings, those are real. So. In the attempt to reconcile, you're minimizing the offense, but Christian forgiveness doesn't minimize the offense. It says, yeah, you did that, and it wasn't okay, but you know what? I love you, and I forgive you. I will not make you pay for this. I'm not going to give you the silent treatment until you've atoned for your sin. I'm not going to berate you until I feel better about myself and we can patch things up. I can say at the same sentence, this is what you did and it was wrong and it hurt me and it's not okay and I love you and I forgive you and I'm not gonna make you pay for it, ever. That's somebody who's believing and embodying the fire and the baptism. This was wrong and I'm moving towards wrong with love, with sacrifice. This should make us the most loving people on the planet. This should make us the most compassionate, the most winsome, the most engaged in the efforts of justice in our city, the most sacrificial. And last thing I'll say, this, this should also make us the least argumentative and uh, it should melt away any arrogance in us. When people, 
we get into dialogues with or debates with and say, you know, we, we talk about ideas and things that we disagree on. This should make us the most patient, the most compassionate with everybody else. Because it, the moment where we start to treat other people with cruelty or um, a lack of kindness, a lack of patience, we're out of sync with the very things that we believe. Because what is at the core of the Christian gospel? The core of the Christian gospel is we look at the cross and we say, here's how Jesus treated people that disagreed with him. He died for them. He gave away his life for them out of love. If that's how Jesus treated me when I disagreed with him, how in the world could I treat you any differently when you disagree with me? It makes us winsome. It makes us loving. It makes us sacrificial. We need this. We need the fire and the baptism, and we're lost without it. I know it's a big pill to swallow, and it's hard to wrap our mind around, and it is divisive. But here's the gospel, that there is a judge and in his mercy, he has come to bear that judgment himself. You take that into the core of your being, everything changes. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, uh, these are heavy and hard realities to process. I pray that you would give us the grace to receive them. Give us the grace to see Jesus in all of his glory, to see the cross in all of its glory, that we might be people that are humbled. We might be people that see how costly love really is and that we in turn might be the kind of people that give our lives away in love, not just for our, friend, our friends and not just for our family, but maybe even for our enemies. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.